wonder if we could open the scriptures this morning again at 2 Corinthians and we'll be commencing again in three, chapter 3 and God willing we'll finish this chapter this morning and we'll pick up at verse 12, 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 12. Follow me as I read. Therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech. And I'm not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was fading away. But their minds were hardened, for until this very day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is a spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with an unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. May God add a blessing to his word this morning. As you can see, the title of my message is The Covenant Unveiled. And I've tried to portray an image up there, something of what we're speaking of this morning. You know, it's always a special function at a wedding, is it not? When either the father of the bride or maybe the bridegroom removes the veil from the bride's face. Most of you, a lot of you guys have experienced that. Some are hanging out for it. I see a few smiles. You see, the removal of that veil is symbolic. Symbolic of a new intimacy, a a new covenant relationship about to begin between the husband and wife and for them to enjoy. And as we think about the marriage relationship, the bond between the husband and wife, it's often used in scripture. So I'm not pulling something from the air here. It's often used in scripture as a picture of a new heavenly relationship, an eternal covenant, we might say, and rightly say, between Jesus Christ and his church. This is when Jesus being the bridegroom and the church, his bride, is spoken of to illustrate a permanent covenant relationship or a covenant love Christ has for his people. But in order for that marriage, that permanent spiritual union between undeserving sinners and a sinless, holy, spotless Saviour to take place. In order for that union to take place, the veil has to be lifted. The veil of spiritual blindness. That, by the way, every single person is born with. It needs to be removed so that understanding and trust and love and commitment can be exercised toward the loving bridegroom, Jesus Christ himself. Now that's an issue you need to ponder right at the beginning of this message. You need to ask yourself, am I still blind and hardened toward the Saviour's love, 
this new covenant that Jesus Christ has ushered in, am I still hardened towards his love? Hence, I do not yet trust him. You need to ask yourself that. Because this was Paul's concern. This was the Apostle Paul's concern for the, pre- the professing church back in Corinth. He was concerned for these believers or these professing believers, um, especially as false teachers came up from Jerusalem, no doubt, and infiltrated the church and began spreading a false doctrine that we talked about last week where it was, yes, believe in Jesus Christ plus doing a whole lot of stuff, right? And that produced a veil of blindness and ignorance. It produced hard hearts. And it was keeping people in the Corinthian church from seeing and applying this new covenant truth that Jesus Christ brought in. It stopped them applying that that to their lives. So what Paul does in this five chapter, I've called it, as you know, this five chapter apostolic digression, it's in parenthesis to his whole letter for five chapters, is he defends the ministry of the new covenant against what the false teachers were teaching back in Corinth. He defends it. He does this by stating how the new covenant of the gospel in Jesus Christ is superior, far better, as you read of in Hebrews, than the old covenant of God's law that was given through Moses. Far better. Hence you see the word better, better, better all the way through the book of Hebrews. But that's what Paul does here in this five chapter parenthesis. And we saw last week that the new covenant is superior because it gives eternal life, it produces righteousness and is permanent. And in this section, Paul continues to give reasons why the new covenant is superior to the old covenant in that, firstly, it gives hope. Secondly, that it comes with clarity. It's very clear. And it's Christ-centered. And also, it's empowered by the Spirit of God. And then finally, it's transforming. So there you have the five points, and that's what we're going to be dealing with this morning. The New Covenant gives hope. We see this in verse 12. By the way, I've borrowed these, messages, these headings from a commentary, so I'll give uh, credit where credit is due. Uh, they're not my own. I just couldn't word them any better. I've just altered them a little bit, but here we have the first one. The New Covenant gives hope. As we'll see in our text, it starts off with the word therefore. And wherever we see the word therefore, as I often say, you want to really ask, what's it there for? And what it means is, owing to what has already been established, that's what that word therefore is, therefore. Owing to what has been established, that is, in this case, the new covenant, it gives tremendous hope. Owing to what has been established, wow, this new covenant gives the believer, the saint in God, the one who has come to Christ and repents of faith, it gives him and her an amazing, solid hope. And so what is the result of that? Paul says here, so we use great boldness in speech. Paul is absolutely confident in what he says and what he preaches. You see, folks, hope is a powerful motivation for life, isn't it? Everyone has hope, you know that? Everyone hopes in something. 
May it be a long life, may it be a happy family, may it be enough money to live comfortably, uh, maybe to enjoy a long retirement. Nothing wrong in those things in and of themselves. As a matter of fact, they're probably all on our bucket list. But the major problem with these things is that they're only very temporary. Very temporary. None of these things deal with what really matters most, which is a hope that has eternal benefits rooted in God's love and mercy. And because of this ignorance that was being shown and hard-hearted believers or people calling themselves believers back then and even today, because of this hard-heartedness, people don't even like discussing the possibility of there being such a thing as an eternal hope. They get embarrassed. You would have come across this. Sad to say, when you talk, talk to Christians, you start talking about the hope when if they start shuffling their feet and not being comfortable, maybe stuck for words. Shame on that person. So what tends to happen is people satisfy themselves in the only hope that they have, and that is to rely on what is temporary, what their temporary things may provide them or may, provide, or may not provide them. So that's their hope. Now, in Paul's day, where there were these very religious, I might say, devout Jews who were clutching on to another kind of temporary hope. And this was a religious hope. You might say, wow, that's pretty good, a religious hope. But this hope was in God's law. You might say again, oh, wow, there can't be anything wrong with that. Or as the Scriptures calls it here, the old covenant. They were hoping that through the old covenant of God's law that was given through Moses, it might deliver them from God's wrath and it might declare them righteous if they keep the demands of that law. See, it was a very conditional covenant. You keep it and you shall live. You don't keep it and you shall die. Pretty simple, right? A conditional covenant. The amazing thing is, the new covenant is unconditional. It's unconditional. God has loved us with an eternal love. Are we perfect now? None of us here would say that we're perfect. We're all sinners. The flesh is weak. The spirit may be strong, but the flesh is weak and we all know that every single day. Just like the promise made to Abraham was an unconditional covenant because he came to God in faith and that's exactly the same kind of covenant that we see in the new. So these people... These Judaizers, these false teachers, they fail to understand that this old covenant, that is the Ten Commandments and all its associated laws, was never ever designed to give that kind of hope. As a matter of fact, it was designed to do the exact opposite. It was designed to produce a personal brokenness. It was designed to bring about an individual a woeful mourning at how spiritually bankrupt a person is and how hopeless all our efforts are in trying to keep the perfect holy law of God. We cannot do that, folks. Impossible. We had that and read of it this morning in our responsive reading. Jesus himself taught that in Matthew chapter 5 in the Beatitudes. And then he he sums up in chapter 5 and verse 20 and he, and he says to the people that were listening that wasn't only his disciples because there was a great crowd there, he said, hey, listen to this. I want to really cap it off here. 
Unless your righteousness exceeds the scribes and Pharisees, you cannot and will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, folks, you could not get anyone more self-righteous than the scribes and the Pharisees. They were religious to the max. Okay? Religious to the max. But he says, unless you exceed that righteousness, which is an impossibility in and of ourselves, right? That's the whole idea of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And so the old covenant given through Moses was never designed to give hope. It was designed to point the sinner, the breaker of God's holy law, to the one and only person who gives eternal hope, which is Jesus Christ. And we see that in Galatians 3 and verse 24. The endless sacrifices demanded by the old covenant, as a matter of fact, killed any kind of hope that a person might have had. And it killed maybe a bit of a pun there. In other words, you sin in the morning. So if you go out of the paddock, you get a sacrifice to whatever you can afford. And if you're a poor person, you go and get a bird. If you're all fairly well off, you're expected to get a, a beast or sheep or something like that. And off you go to the altar. And as the priestess slays it, you hold, his, you hold your hand on the head of the animal. And that animal is sacrificed on behalf of you for your sin. The trouble is, he goes home to the afternoon and has an argument with his wife and he sins again. And over it all goes again. He's got to offer another sacrifice. And so on and on and on it went. There was no permanency. Hebrews 10 and 4 tells us, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. No hope of being permanently forgiven by God through the Old Covenant. Now it is true that the Old Testament saints did have a hope. They hoped in God's mercy. But the mercy that God gave them and the mercy they received was not based on the old covenant of God's law. No, it wasn't. It was based on the new covenant that was to come in in their future that they hadn't seen. Okay? They were men and women of faith. They hoped in God's mercy and they believed what God said concerning their coming Messiah and concerning promises of the future that many have happened and many have happened for us but not for them. And so God responded because of their faith in him. John the Baptist, the last, we call the last of the Old Testament prophets, um, he declared this new covenant when Jesus came into the world to give his life a ransom for many. And he said in John 1.17, the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. And he says a little bit later on in that chapter, behold, when referring to Jesus himself who was there with him, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So here it is. The promises of the Old Testament were realized in the coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, and he did away with the Old Covenant in order to establish the New. But hope here, as we think about hope, is the confident belief that God will fulfill all the promises of this New Covenant through his Son, Jesus Christ. That's what this hope is here in our text. And as I said before, many of those have already been fulfilled and it's been ratified, as a matter of fact. It was ratified in the shed blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. All covenants had to be ratified. That's why animals had to die. You couldn't just say, okay, out you go to the paddock. No, 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 they had to die. Blood had to be shed. It had to be ratified in order for it to do its job. And so Jesus Christ died in order to deliver us and give us freedom from sin. But the benefits like forgiveness, righteousness in Christ, eternal life, 
Yes, they are ours now, absolutely, and we rejoice in them because of what Christ has done. But you know what? When we talk about hope, the best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. The grand finale, can we say, of this covenant, this new covenant, where every believer will be transformed and receive a glorified body made suitable for heaven's abode is yet to happen. As the coming of Messiah was yet to happen for the likes of Isaiah and the prophets and the Old Testament saints, this wonderful part of God's promise here in the new covenant is yet to happen for us. You see, this is the hope of the believer Paul told the, told the Colossian believers, remember, about this hope. He says this, The hope laid up for you in heaven, which you previously heard in the truth of the gospel. So he told the Colossian believers. And, and the, the writer to the Hebrews also says, uh, in Hebrews 7 and 19, he wrote of a better hope of which we draw near to God. A better hope. Superior. And so this is why Paul and every minister of the gospel, including every believer here this morning, should speak and tell of this new covenant, what with? With boldness. That boldness there, it, it's not talking about in your face and, and, and so forth. It, spe- it means with confidence. Not with a sort of a head turned, muttering under our breath. And, and No, no, with absolute confidence we can share the truth of this new covenant to people who don't know about it or are blind and ignorant about it. Because this is a sure hope in Christ. It's not found in anywhere else, no matter what religion you might try, it's not there. And so not only does the new covenant of the gospel of Jesus Christ give hope, but we also see that the new covenant comes with clarity. Okay, It comes with clarity. We see this in verses 13 to 14a. The Old Testament is full of types and shadows. You only have to read the Old Testament. You say, what is all this? And it's full of types and shadows and pictures of something of a greater reality. And, um, and those realities, of course, in the Old Testament times, many of them were yet to be revealed. And they're referred to in the New Testament as the mysteries of the kingdom. Okay? So when we think about mystery, it's not some fanciful dreamland type situation. No, no. A mystery is truth once concealed, but now revealed okay and um and so this is what god's fading glory on moses's face is all about as we discussed last week you know very well that when moses went up to the mountain to receive the lord he got the ten commandments etc he came down and his face glowed he had covered his face so that people could not look and also when he went into the tabernacle to meet with god and when he came out again he had to cover his face and he covered his face so the people could not look and they did not and would not look intently on this glory that they saw The issue was here that the glory that Moses wore that was seen shining on his face, it represented, it was like a shadow, it pointed to something. It represented God's law, the old covenant. It was with glory, yes, nothing wrong with it. It was perfect and holy, but it was fading. Okay, It was fading. It was on the way out. And so what Moses does, he discharges his duty, he proclaims the law of God, not with open clarity and boldness like Paul speaks of here, but with a veiled face. 
He covers, he obscures his glowing place, which symbolizes also the inability or can we say the refusal of the people to understand clearly the purpose and design of God's holy law. It was, it was uh, covered up, it was not clear. And we need to understand that this wasn't about Moses choosing all of his own to conceal God's Lord from the people. This wasn't about that. It also wasn't about the fact that, well, the law wasn't really up to scratch and had some fault. No, no, the law was God's holy law. What this was all about was Moses representing the real reason why Israel would not look intently. That's what the scripture says, would not look intently at Moses. Who, by the way, represented God's holiness to the people. They would not and could not look intently. And so we should ask, why could they or why would they not look? We see that in verse 14. There's the answer. Because what? Their minds were hardened. You see that? Because their minds were hardened. And Paul notes that the very same hardened minds were present in his day. The same hardened mind that was present in Moses' day was, were, were present in Paul's day. After the death and burial and ascension of Jesus Christ, the beginning of the church, in our day we can call it. And Dara might say there still might be some hard hearts or covered hearts, hardened minds here today. And this has always been a problem, you know that? This has always been a problem, especially, of course, with Israel. Stephen facing martyrdom. Remember that great long message and speech he gave, that sermon? And in that, he summed up Israel's hard hearts. And this is what he said. You are men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears and are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. In other words, the same veil that obscured the design and purpose of God's holy law in Moses' time is still present today. When Stephen was there, when Paul was there, and even today. Even Jesus himself, he denounced the Jews for this blind-minded ignorance. In John 5.39, this is what he says, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. He's speaking of these religious Jews here. But like people who go to church every week and do this and do that and, and really their hearts are still covered. doesn't prove a thing. Here these people were searching the scriptures because you think in them that you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. Verse 46. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me for he wrote about me. Verse 47. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? these religious people really missed the whole point of who Jesus Christ was and how the old covenant was fading and the new was being brought in. These ancients, like many today, misunderstand the purpose of the old covenant because of their hard hearts. They wrongly think that by being good and endeavouring to keep the commandments of God's law, that is what will earn them God's favour. Many religious people like that still today. But sadly to say that this is self-righteous religion. And you know what the result of that was? 
you will not inherit the kingdom of heaven, so you will only be taken to hell. You see, the clarity of the new covenant, which reveals the mysteries of the kingdom, mysteries like the church, and where people, Jews and Gentiles, uh, and we can expand that even further, people from all countries, like we have represented in this little church building today, the mystery of all people being called by this new covenant to become one in Christ and be brothers and sisters as one family with Christ ahead, it was a mystery in the Old Testament. But now it's been revealed in the person of Jesus Christ in the new covenant of the gospel. Thirdly, the new covenant is Christ-centred. You see this in verses 14 and 16 and into 18. So what does this mean? It simply means this. The veil of ignorance and hard hearts, where our text says, it said the veil remains, see that? The veil of ignorance and hard hearts that covers and hides the purpose of the old covenant is removed how? It's removed in Christ. It's removed in Christ. In other words, God's law that gives no hope and only condemns will always be misunderstood until the new covenant ratified by Jesus' death, burial and resurrection until that is accepted and believed and personally applied to one's life. The veil of hard and hearts will remain. It's the gospel of the new covenant that reveals the mystery of God's plan of redemption. It was hidden in the old covenant. Jesus reminded his disciples in chapter 13 and verse 11. This is what he says. To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. There we have it. The veil of unbelief in their case, the veil of a hardened heart in their case was removed. And people then and people today will continue to think that they can save themselves which completely misses the meaning of both the old and the new covenant. Self-righteousness is the greatest sin of all kind. But a good question right now would be is, how can I clearly see and understand with a right heart the glory of the new covenant? How can I as an individual do that? The answer is this. Here in our text, see verse 16? It's only when a person, what does he do? Turns to the Lord. That the veil is taken away and God's purpose is made plain. I love this. It's a, it's a great truth. You see, it's not about religious ceremony or belonging to a church or keeping feasts or giving money or whatever else a good religious person might do. It's nothing to do with that. It's simply one by one, person by person, who turns to the Lord. Now that word turn there, has the idea, and it's the same word, from repentance. When a person repents, they turn. What did the Thessalonians do? Have a look at First Thessalonians chapter 1. They turned from idols, or they turned to God, away from the idols that they worshipped. So there's not only a change of mind, because that's what its original means, it's a change of mind, but if that change of mind is real, it will activate an action in their lives. Okay? It's not sort of speaking out both sides of your mouth at the same time. A turning here is a turning away from sin and a turning to God. This is what this means. 
one by one. The new covenant of redemption and forgiveness and hope and eternal reward is completely wrapped up in the person of Jesus Christ. That's why we we like to think that we're a Christ-centered church. That's what every church should be, is Christ-centered, right? Because the new covenant is Christ-centered. It's all about Jesus Christ. Matter of fact, the whole Bible is all about Jesus Christ. The central person is Jesus Christ. The Old Testament pointed to him. The Gospels tell of him. And the epistles teach believers how to live for him. And the book of Revelation tells how we will be with him. It's not a book of morals. It's a book about Jesus Christ. He is now God's revelation to sinners who turn to him. Jesus Christ, the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We all, every believer, now can behold him. How do we behold him? How do we see him? We see him by faith, folks. We see him by faith. No, we can't see him with our literal physical eyes, but we see him by faith. We're a people of faith. We walk by faith, not by sight. By faith we look into his face, not covered. Our face is not covered with a veil. Our minds are not covered with a veil of unbelief anymore. But we see him and we look to him like looking now into a mirror. We see Jesus. And so when you look in the mirror, what do you see? You see your reflection. Now it's not reality. You poke the mirror and you don't poke yourself, right? So it's not ultimate reality there, but in the coming day, folks, ultimate reality will kick in big time because we will see Jesus Christ as he is. It doesn't come better than that, right? It doesn't come better than that. Paul reminds us of this in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 12. He says, For now we see in a mirror dimly. Get the idea? Even though you may have a nice shiny mirror, you may think, oh, wow, it shows up every detail. But that is not you. And so we see by faith and we look by faith and we have this sure hope of Jesus Christ. He's part of us. He's in us. He's over us. He's under us. He's before us. But we still look at him by faith as in a mirror that we see dimly the image. And what is Paul going to say? But then, in other words, in a future time, face to face, face to face, Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as also I have been known fully. We see now from unveiled hearts by faith that he is God's glory. Amen. Praise God for the faith that he has granted us. We see from un- with unveiled hearts by faith that Jesus is the radiance of his glory. This is what the Hebrew writer says. We see by faith that Jesus is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature who upholds all things by the word of his power. We see him, right? We see him. Hebrews 1.3 I wonder if that's how we see the Lord this morning. Is that how you see the Lord this morning? Or is he still obscure? Is he still covered with a heart of unbelief? You see, it's only when a person turns to the Lord of the new covenant in repentance and faith will that veil of obscurity be removed. Fourthly, the new covenant is empowered by the Spirit and we see this in verse 17. You know, often unbelievers view Christians, view believers as those who are driven by a list of rules. They see us as people, okay, you're those guys who are not allowed to do this, 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 this. You only must do this, 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 this. And they see us as being dictated to by a list of religious rules and regulations. 
In other words, they ignorantly think that an external set of religious laws is what makes us tick and is our motivation to please God. How wrong is that, right? How wrong is that? Our text says here, now the Lord is a spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. You see that? This is a wonderful text. So what does this mean? Firstly, let us note that Paul here affirms the deity of the Holy Spirit. We know that Jesus Christ is God, but here we have the Holy Spirit is also equal in the deity. We believe in the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Well, here it is. Here's a text that tells you that the Holy Spirit is equal in the Godhead. But this, this new covenant, this promise from God, also affirms that the same God who gave the old covenant of the law which condemns sinners, is the same God who has revealed the new covenant through Jesus Christ. That's what it tells us. And this is the covenant, the promise from God through the Spirit that offers salvation and liberty from what? From futile attempts to earn our salvation. I don't know, I've seen pictures, you've probably seen them as well over the years, of people doing unbelievable, horrendous things. Especially places like the Philippines, you know, they'll flagellate themselves and they'll carry crosses and they'll crucify themselves and they'll do all sorts of physical, tangible, painful things thinking that these kind of things will earn them brownie points or favour with God. But on a lesser scale, people even today, they'll go to confession, they'll go to church maybe two or three times a year or whatever, thinking that this might earn them favour. Well, the new covenant truth frees us from that bondage because all the work is done for us in Christ. It's salvation. And this text tells us apart from the Spirit of God, there can be no liberty. No liberty, no salvation. In other words, man's total depravity stops him in his tracks and makes him completely incapable of saving himself. No matter how good he is or she might be. That's what our total depravity is. Our total depravity, for those who are not sure what that means, is that we are dead in trespasses and sin. And when the Scriptures tell us in Ephesians 2 that we are dead, it means dead. It's not half dead, quarter dead, or three quarters dead. It's 100% dead. And so there needs to be some work done on spiritually dead, dead people, right? And that work is called regeneration. Each of us, each person needs the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit to come and enliven and quicken, the old King James says, the soul that is dead toward God. There needs to be this regenerating work, this divine action of bringing life to a dead, hardened heart in order for that sinner to respond to God in repentance and faith. That's what it takes. This is the internal empowering glory of God that gives us freedom versus the external law that demanded obedience and only condemns. But there is more. There's more here. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. You see that? In other words, just as, just think about this. You go back to the book of Genesis. Remember? God created Adam out of the dust of the ground. And there Adam was, in all his beauty and all his finery, uh, with his physique and everything, but he was a lifeless and animate piece of flesh and bone. 
What does God do? He breathed into him, and what happened to Adam? He became a living soul. You got that? Now, that's exactly what has to happen to sinners because we are dead in trespasses and sin. It takes the Spirit of God through Christ to breathe into us one by one, person by person, into sinful man, spiritual life, and he is freed from spiritual death. This is linked to verse 6 of this chapter, by the way, where it does say that, uh, where it says that the Spirit gives life. That's what it means here. This is the Spirit's work, folks. This is the Spirit's work. He convicts sinners and regenerates their dead hearts and minds. John 6, 16 and verse 8 says, And when, this is Jesus speaking of the Holy Spirit before he ascended back into heaven, before he went home to be with the Father, and, and he says, And he, when he comes, speaking to his disciples, will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness and judgment. That's his job. That's what he does. That's his role. Now some of you might be thinking, Oh, well, what happens first? Don't bother going down that trail. What happens first? What happens first? Does the Spirit's regenerating work happen first? Or, or is it when a person turns to the Lord? Does that have to happen first? In other words, there's the Spirit of God sort of hanging back there and waiting for me to turn in my own energy and phone flesh and so that he will regenerate me. Now, that's a big question. It's a big question. All I'll say on that is this. The Spirit of God does not depend on you to make a first move. You got that? He doesn't depend on... You don't choose God. I hate to burst your bubble here. You do not choose God. God chooses you. Ephesians 1.4, just to put a text on it, I'm not making this up. He is absolutely sovereign and he moves whenever and wherever to give eternal life to whoever he pleases and so hence we entirely depend on him. That's what we teach here and that's what we believe here in this church. That's what we believe the Bible teaches. That's why we preach it. Let God do his business. Just focus on our responsibility. If you're outside of Christ here this morning, and your responsibility before God, without getting into all the technicalities of all how all this really works, because I don't know all the answers, but I know it works. I know God's got it in control. Our responsibility is to make sure we heed his command. And what is that? Repent and believe in Jesus Christ of the new covenant. That's your responsibility. And then finally, the new covenant is transforming. We see this in the last part of verse 18. This is the final surpassing benefit of the new covenant. What it really says here is that it continues to work in us. You see, the new covenant in Jesus Christ is not a start-stop kind of deal. Many Christians treat it like that. Think, oh yes, I've come to the Lord, I've put my hand, I've signed the form, and they go and live like the devil. Thinking that they're home and hosed. Sorry for the expression, but that's how they think. But no, no, no. The, the, the new covenant's work is ongoing. Yes, we are sanctified. We're set apart in time, space and history when we come to the Lord, when we turn to him. But what we see in this text here, there is a, a progressiveness in our salvation. In other words, if our salvation is genuine, if our turning to the Lord is genuine, it will continue to produce the goods. That's what the word transformed means, by the way. Metamorph over the Greek, for those who want to know that. 
It means to progressively change form. We get the word metamorphosis from this, you know, for you science geeks who have studied the, the life cycle of a caterpillar, chrysalis and whatever. It's continually changing form. That's where we get it. So what the gospel of the new covenant does is that it progressively stamps on the person who's turned to the Lord and it continues to do so week by week, month by month, year by year. I was going to say century by century, but that would be pushing it a bit. It progressively stamps on us the image of God. Oh, wow. That's pretty awesome. And this happens as we yield with our softened hearts, with hearts that have had the veil removed, as we yield our softened hearts to the word of God and we walk in, in what we say, in sweet persuasion of the Holy Spirit, we will change, folks. We really will. As we are transformed by the renewing of our what? Romans 12 verse 2 says, by the renewing of our minds. You see that? Remember that? Colossians 3.10 says that we, we will change as we keep putting on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created them. I have been gutted by this during this last week. I have been challenged to the max. You only have to ask my wife about this. Because there hasn't been enough change in me that I'd like to see. I want to be more and more and more like Jesus Christ than I really am now. It's an absolute given that a person who has turned to the Lord in genuine faith and repentance will become more and more like Jesus Christ. It's a given. That's a work of God in us. In other words, if there's no change, God is not in you. God just doesn't come and save you for kicks and leave you to your own self. No, no, no. He will challenge you. He will test you. He will, he, he will put all trials before you to work out perseverance, etc., etc., and patience. So the new covenant is just not about saving us from hell. No, it's much more than that. It's about changing us to image Jesus Christ while we're here on earth. It's all about us being image bearers. And that is our goal. It should be, right? This is where we get the word icon from, because it's a word in the Greek. Image, icon. And so we, we are, every one of us is a representative of Jesus Christ. And so when a person looks at you, they should see Jesus Christ. It's all about being those whom he, that is God, it's all about being those whom he foreknew he, he also predestined to be what? To be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Romans 8.29 And then one day, one day, one day, the grand finale met formo par excellence of the believer's hope is going to be realised. This is gospel truth. This is new covenant truth. It'll be realised when in a moment in the twinkling of an eye of the last trump, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable. That's a massive change, isn't it? And it says, then we will be changed, those who are alive and remain. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 52. In conclusion, what about right now, folks? What about right now? What about today? I've had to do some checks 
I want you to do a check. Honestly, evaluate the change from glory to glory that you have experienced over this last year, this last two years. Is there a change in your life that reflects Jesus Christ more and more? If not, there is something drastically wrong. Something drastically wrong. And my prayer is that that veil of a hard heart that still obscures the glory of Jesus Christ of the new covenant, my prayer is that it will be removed and you will turn to the Lord. It may be that you have turned to the Lord and you have backslidden so far that there is nothing in you that looks like Jesus Christ. Well, it's time for you still to repent and turn to the Lord. Transformation into the image of Jesus Christ is evidence of the new covenant at work in you. Let us examine ourselves to see whether we are in the faith and be encouraged that we have a hope, an eternal hope. Thank you, Benji.